in both cases because they were better fits as far as need goes. I think at the end of the day, they feel like Simmons has the highest upside. He's the best talent in this draft and that they're going to figure out how to make it work. Obviously, the Sixers need backcourt help, and obviously they need shooting, and they're going to have to address that other ways via the draft or free agency or what have you. Uh, but when you get the chance to draft a 6'10", 240-pound point guard uh, with elite court vision and who's an elite athlete, you just don't, you don't pass that up, and you're watching what LeBron is doing right now in the playoffs, and, and there's just – no answer for players that have those elite physical skills uh, but then have guard basketball skills. And I think that's what makes Simmons so attractive. And I think that the Sixers will really try to figure out how to play him at point guard, how to put the ball in his hands, because that's what he is and how he's comfortable. And, and who knows, he may end up solving this, this point guard dilemma uh, for the Sixers just by having Simmons play that. As far as 24 and 26 go, I mean, it's really hard to know because this draft is so fluid right now. We're still trying to figure out kind of the order of the top 10 picks and to try to figure out what's happening at 24 and 26. But I think there's a couple of things that, that you can look at. One is that obviously the Sixers need shooting and there's going to be a couple of players that might be in that range, whether it's a Malik Beasley out of Florida state or a Malachi Richardson uh, out of Syracuse, um, perhaps even an international player like a Furkan Korkmaz. So that might be a little low for him. Uh, Juan Hernan Gomez, guys that can really shoot the basketball are going to come at a priority. And then I also think maybe a combo guard, uh, someone that can be uh, both a ball handler and, uh, and play the one and the two. Uh, if DeJounte Murray was there out of Washington, I think there's a lot of interest there. Tyler Ulis uh, out of Kentucky. I think there's, there's a number of options for them uh, as they get uh, down that far in the draft. But you're basically at 24 and 26 looking at players that are rotation players at best. These are not necessarily guys that you would ever think of starting. And so I think free agency and trades are going to have to be the way the Sixers go to address those other needs. Okay. Thanks a lot. Uh-huh. Perfect. We're going to move right on. Uh, Randy Peterson from the uh, Des Moines Register is up now. Mark Snyder from the Detroit Detroit Press is on deck. Randy, go ahead. Thank you. Chad, we're, you're going to tell us, and we're going to hear about all the elite players in the country for the next hour or so. Where does George Niang fit into this draft, if in fact he does? I think he's a possible second-round pick, and he's a possible second-round pick because of his versatility and just an incredibly high basketball IQ. He's, he's the sort of player that when you look at him athletically and size-wise, there just isn't, isn't a lot there uh, to get excited about, and that's why I think he's a second-round pick. But because of his ability uh, to see the floor, because of his versatility, because he can shoot it, and just, just has that great, great feel for the game, there's an, an attraction there. I, you know, a few years ago, Draymond Green slipped into the second round in part for many of the same reasons that Niang will. But teams question, you know, he's not an elite athlete. What position does he play? Who is he going to defend at the NBA? He landed on the right team, a coach that really understood how to utilize him. And now Draymond Green is one of the maybe top ten players in the NBA. I'm, I'm not saying Niang will be that way, but I think more teams are, are becoming open to the idea 
that guys that don't check the boxes with size and athleticism can play a role in the NBA if the coach utilizes them the right way. And I think Niang brings that to the table. I, I can't tell you exactly where he goes. I do not think he'll be a first-round pick, but I think it's very likely that he could be drafted in the second round. Thank you very much. Perfect. Moving right along. Mark Snyder from the Detroit Press is up now. Kent Youngblood from the Minneapolis Star Tribune on deck. Mark, go ahead. Ken, I was curious what NBA teams, how they're viewing Karis LeVert right now. It seems like there's kind of a, um, a lot of, not a lot of talk about it. Obviously, he hasn't done workouts, so I was kind of curious what their perception is. I think that LeVert would have been a mid to late first round pick had he stayed healthy all year at Michigan. I mean, he brings a lot to the table. He's a young senior. Uh, He's very versatile. He shoots the ball. He passes the ball. He's got a wingspan that allows him to defend multiple positions. There's a lot of attractiveness there. And and the concern, and it's a big concern, is obviously the medicals. Uh, He's not able to work out. Uh, There's concern uh, in in the medicals that, that were taken in Chicago um, about sort of the process of him getting back. And teams just get gun shy when you're talking about gu- giving guaranteed deals to guys that might not be healthy in a critical sort of first year. And, you know, Levert missed a huge chunk of his senior year and a big part of his junior year as well. And so I think those are the concerns that probably mean that he slides into the second round, goes somewhere in the 30s or early 40s, and, and teams can be a lot more flexible uh, with him, put him in the D League, allow him to get back to full strength and health. And, but I actually think Levert has a great chance as a player, if he can get healthy, of being a valuable contributor. He fits the trend that NBA teams are really looking for in a guy that can, can handle the ball, can pass the ball, can shoot the ball, can play multiple positions, you, you watch what the Warriors are doing, and every team in the league wants to replicate that to a certain extent. They want to put four or five players on the floor that can handle, shoot, pass, do all of the things uh, that, uh, that typically you'd ask like a point guard to do, and I think Levert has a shot to do that. Thank you. Perfect. Kent Youngblood from Minneapolis is up now. Anthony Chang from the Palm Beach Post is on deck. Kent, go ahead. Thank you. Um, I wanted to talk about the, a couple of the big guys at the top of the draft, uh, Bender and uh, Chris. Um, how much do you think Bender's stock is being helped by what Porzingis did last year, and how do you attribute uh, what, what, to what do you attribute uh, Chris's kind of huge rise in uh, in people's eyes? Well, I think on the first question of Bender, yes, Porzingis has helped him. I think he. Porzingis has opened the door again to the idea that international players can can be dominant. I don't think it's fair to compare the two other than to say that they're both tall, they're both skinny, and they both uh, have some versatility. I, I think uh, Porzingis is a much better athlete and had more experience uh, playing in the ACB, which I think is the best league outside of Europe. It was easy to watch Porzingis in Spain last year and see him playing against elite competition in Europe and say, this kid's going to be special. Bender played for an elite team as well, Maccabi Tel Aviv, but he didn't get a lot of minutes. His role was much more limited. 
on Maccabi. He had some injuries and things like that. So it was a lot harder to see his full array of skills. So I think the first thing I'd say is that Bender doesn't have the same experience uh, that that Porzingis had coming in the league. The, the second thing I'd say is he doesn't have the same athleticism. While he moves pretty well laterally, he's not as explosive uh, as Porzingis, and he doesn't really utilize his athleticism the same way uh, that Porzingis does. And I think that's a knock against Bender. On the upside, I think he's a better shooter right now than Porzingis is. He shot over 40% from three this year, and he's gotten very good at spotting up in the corners, which is what a lot of NBA teams want their stretch fours to do. He's also a really good rim protector and a, and a good rebounder. He has a great motor. He really hustles out there. I think he's, he's a perfect fit as a modern NBA uh, power forward in what he does. I'm not sure that he has the same star potential that Porzingis does, but I think in this draft, for a team like the Timberwolves uh, or a team like the Phoenix Suns, he's a really good fit into what they need and, and what they're looking for. And then Chris, I, I, I'm, I'm one that questions a little bit how much he's really risen. Like he's been on, in, our, in our top ten for a while, and I think it's just as far as tiers go, as the team's finally, the draft order finally laid out and you started looking at the teams at the top, what did Phoenix need? What did Minnesota need? What did Boston need? Uh, Chris fits that mold a little bit. And when you're talking about upside, which is big at the top of the draft, how high are the ceilings of these players? You look at a 6'10 player who's one of the best athletes that I've encountered in doing the draft in the last 15 years at that size, both vertically and laterally, how explosive he is. He's 18 years old. He shoots the three. He can handle the ball a little bit. That's really intriguing. But I also say he has one of the lowest floors of, of the top picks in the draft. He doesn't rebound. That's a huge concern. There's immaturity there, both in his feel for the game. He was constantly getting into foul trouble, uh, had some, trouble sometimes containing his emotions on the court and just an overall and just an overall maturity. He's much more of an 18 year old than some of the other prospects in this draft that he doesn't quite have that maturity yet. Now he can get it. And if he gets it and he hits the ceiling, he should have went number three uh, or number four in this draft. If he doesn't, he's going to make a team look bad. Like Tyrus Thomas made the bulls look bad uh, several years ago. And I think that's what teams are trying to weigh right now. How confident are we in his personality that he's going to be able to uh, become the star that he could be? Thank you. Perfect. We'll have uh, Anthony from the Palm Beach Post up now, John Hale from the Lexington Courier Journal on deck. Anthony, go ahead. Hey, Chad, two quick questions. Um, the Heat obviously don't have a pick this year. They're known as a franchise that doesn't necessarily put a lot of value on the draft. What, what's your philosophy on building through the draft versus building through free agency and, and trades? Well, I, I think there's, there's, I, I think teams have different approaches depending on, on what their needs are and where they're located. The Heat uh, have, a, have a couple of things going for them. One, they, they have an owner that's willing to spend. They're in a big market. They have a very desirable location. Uh, NBA free agents like play in Miami. Uh, there's a draw there that allows them to draw elite free agents. And, and so some of that eschews away from using the draft as a, as, a, as a building tool because they know that they can lure 
uh, players there that are going to be elite players. If you're the Utah Jazz, there aren't a lot of free agents lining up to go play in Salt Lake. And so you have to find other ways of acquiring players uh, that keep them in Salt Lake. And so the draft becomes more important. But with that said, I think you've seen teams like San Antonio, who've been an elite team, still use the draft as a way of making sure that they don't bottom out. They valued those draft picks. Um, they've been very smart about making them, whether it was Kawhi Leonard, uh, you know, that they got out of the lottery or Tiago Splitter or Tony Parker that they got the, at the end of the first round or Danny Green. I mean, there's a lot of players that the Spurs have figured out how to bring in and help keep the thing churning. And the great thing about draft picks is that they are an absolute bargain. Uh, because of the rookie salary scale, most draft picks are underpaid compared to the performance that they have. And that's very valuable for teams managing cap. And I think it's going to become very interesting going forward because as the cap rose dramatically, uh, and it's going to mean huge, huge amounts of money for free agents, maybe up to 40% raises across the board, the rookie salary scale did not jump up. Uh, and so rookies become an even bigger bargain uh, than they've ever been. And I think that's one thing just to keep in mind. Uh, as far as the heat goes, you're right, they haven't valued it, but then they got Justice Winslow uh, last year in the draft, and I think he's been a very critical um, piece in thinking about projecting forward how the Heat uh, go forward as some of their other stars um, become older and, and start. you have to start to wonder about how much longer they're going to be playing at a high level. Thank you. And second, um, you mentioned Justice Winslow. Looking back at last year's draft, the Heat did have a good one. How much value did they get with Justice You know, going at 10? And then they got Josh Richardson in the second round, who was a pretty key contributor down the stretch. I think they did a great job. Now they got. I, I feel like they got a little lucky uh, with Winslow in that a couple of teams ahead of them, I think, uh, made some mistakes. Uh, and, you know, this is still debatable. We're one year into this, and we'll see how things pan out. But I, I, I thought Winslow was a better prospect than Stanley Johnson, for example, out of Detroit. And, and I think that analytically that – that turned out to be the case. If you look at the analytics and what Winslow contributed to the Heat versus um, Stanley Johnson, I th- I'd say that Winslow won, um, you know, that battle. And so they got they got a little bit lucky. And a guy that I had rated as I think uh, the fifth or sixth best player uh, in the draft slid to them uh, down a little bit further uh, in, in the draft. And so some of it's luck, and then something like Josh Richardson in the second round, that, that was amazing scouting. He was not invited to the NBA draft combine, and when 60 basically players uh, invited there, that, that usually is a consensus of what NBA teams are thinking are the best players available. So obviously the Heat saw something that other teams didn't see, got him in the second round, and he turned out to be a steal. And, and I actually think, interestingly, though the Heat don't value the draft, as much as some other teams do, they have they have a really incredible scouting staff. Thank you very much. Perfect. Continuing, we'll have uh, John Hale from the uh, Lexington Courier Journal is up now, and then Gary Washburn from the Boston Globe is on deck. John, go ahead. Hey, Chad, can you just run me through the latest on the, the four Kentucky guys, Murray, LeBestier, uh, Ulysses and Poitras, and, uh, and especially any health concerns with Ulysses that may have popped up here late? Yeah. Uh, Murray will go three to seven. Uh, he's got a pretty 
pretty narrow range right now. He's in the mix literally with every single one of those teams with a pot, with maybe the exception of the Suns. Celtics are looking at him at three. Wolves are looking at him at five. Pelicans like him at six. And Denver even likes him at seven as a nice backcourt mate to Emmanuel Moutier. And so, and, and it's a little bit fluid there because he, he's, he's battling guys that are in the same tier. All of them are very different in what they do. And so I think it's going to come down more to team need than it is on necessarily ranking, ranking talent. I think as far as talent goes, Murray has the ability to be the best perimeter scorer in this draft. I, I think that he's going to be a 20-point-per-game scorer in the NBA and one of the best shooters in this draft. Defensively, I think the concerns are there. Uh, Labissier is a little bit harder. I put his range right now at about 7 to 13. So Denver at 7 being the high point, Phoenix at 13 being the low point. I think many of us have projected, and I think it's it's very accurate that the Orlando Magic at 11 look like the most likely spot uh, for him to land, his ability to shoot the ball, to stretch the floor, to protect the rim, are elite. The question is, does he know how to play basketball? Does he have a feel for the game? Does he have the toughness uh, to play in the NBA? Those are all huge questions. But when you get to that portion of the draft, I think because there aren't a lot of players left that are sure things, that most of those players are just rotation players now, you start to look at Skull and say, look, if Skull hits, he could be Channing Fry. He might even be better than Channing Fry. And if that's the case, he's worth gambling, even if it ends up being that he can't play. And I think that's why you'll see Milwaukee at 10, uh, Orlando at 11, Utah at 12, and Phoenix, who now have a second uh, uh, first-round pick in the lottery, just go ahead and roll the dice and gamble. So I think he's got a really safe range there. How he pans out as a player, man, that's – I really think anybody that says they know is guessing. I I think so much of it's going to have to be about his maturity and his mental development – um, and whether that can click, because the skills are there. Uh, as far as Euless goes, teams all over the board on him, just because of the size. At 5'10", 150 pounds, there's not a lot of precedent for guys that size um, excelling in the NBA. And people point to Isaiah Thomas, but Isaiah Thomas is a good 30 pounds heavier than Euless uh, is, and he's more of a scoring, super athletic, stocky guard. And there is some precedent for guys like him, Nate Robinson, in that in that role, su- exe- uh, succeeding in the NBA. Euless, it's going to be he's going to be a bit of a trendsetter there. But he is has elite court vision. He is probably the best passing point guard in this draft, and and I think that intrigues some people as far as the hip goes. Uh, I'm still trying to collect information on how big of an issue um, this is. Uh, when you hear those medical reports, it's it's difficult to ascertain how serious these sorts of things are down the road because they go through these prospects with such a thorough look that any little thing um, that has happened in your entire life would show up. If you broke your arm in second grade, it would be there on the report. And there might be a certain level of concern uh, uh, about it, how it healed. If it's something small, like his hips are tight, uh, the muscles are tight, I'd say that's 80% of the NBA. Uh, These players struggle with uh, hip tightness, calcification of the hip, things like that. Uh, uh, It it could also go the other way. Uh, Kavon Looney 
Uh, last year slipped all the way down to 30 because they, there was a concern that he would have to have hip surgery, which actually turned out to be true, and, and, and he's had it this offseason. And that's obviously a more serious concern. The, the feedback that I've gotten from teams is they're aware that there's an issue, um, and there's varying degrees, depending on doctors, conservative nature of things, on how concerned teams are. So it's really hard to pick where Ulyss goes. But I think he either, he either goes somewhere in the 20s or he ends up going, uh, you know, somewhere in the 30s. Uh, but I think that he's going to get drafted, and I don't think it's going to torpedo his draft stock. And Poitras, I think he's a possible second-round pick because he's an elite athlete, and I think he can defend multiple positions. And I actually hear he's shot it pretty well in workouts, and that's what he projects as a guy coming off the bench, playing great defense and hitting some spot-up threes. If he can just do that, I think he has a long career in the NBA. It's the question about will he be a great three-point shooter that teams are concerned about. He shot it really well his freshman year, kind of went down from there. Um, but I, I see, I watched him work out several times in LA. I think I see the potential there for him to become that. And you can't teach his athleticism. Thanks. Perfect. And uh, as a reminder to anyone that was late for the call, we will have a transcript available this afternoon um, of the call. Continuing on, we're going to Gary Washburn with the uh, Boston Globe, and then Samantha Pell with the uh, AP is on deck. Gary, go ahead. Hey, Chad. Um, Two questions. One, you know, what's your take? I mean, you know, it's been up and down, and and all over the board about what the Celtics will do at three. And also at 16, I uh, wanted to get your thoughts on that. And also um, the European kind of craze that, that happened 10, 12 years ago and how that's cooled off. How do you gauge the European market now in terms of NBA teams? Um, why did that change so dramatically? And has it improved uh, over the past couple of years or is it still kind of down? Uh Look, the Celtics control the draft right now. I think we know that Ben Simmons and Brandon Ingram are going one and two. If if they don't go one and two, it'll be because Ingram went one and Simmons went two. And so with the, the Celtics, we've got this really interesting, challenging scenario for them. They would prefer to trade this pick. They would prefer to take it, package it with some of the assets they have, and bring in a young veteran who is an all-star caliber player to really build this team around. That's been the plan all along. I think the Celtics have been fairly open about it. The problem is in this draft, I'm not sure that the number three pick, uh, along with the assets that the Celtics have, are going to be enough to get that sort of player. And and that's that's frustrating for Celtics fans, but it is what it is because you're talking at – at the Jamal Murray level or the Chris Dunn level or the Marquise Chris level as a guy that doesn't project as a surefire fire all-star superstar down the road, that they just, they don't project that way. And so teams being willing to give up a superstar for that become a lot, a lot harder. And the Celtics have a lot of nice pieces, a lot of interesting pieces, but again, none of them are necessarily guys that the team, that team, other teams really covet. I, in fact, I actually think that, that the thing that the Celtics have, their number one asset, is actually the Brooklyn Nets pick next year in 2017. They have the right to swap that pick. It almost looks like there's no scenario in which the Nets are going to be good next year, and the 2017 draft looks absolutely loaded uh, with talent, and that might be their best um, chip. 
if they stay at three, I think it's safe to say, this is frustrating, but I think it's safe to say that they've narrowed it down to four guys, Jamal Murray, Chris Dunn, Jalen Brown um, out of Cal, and and Marquise Chris out of Washington. I think if they go upside, I wouldn't be surprised to see them go Jalen Brown. He fits a need. Uh, He's a wing. He's very athletic. He did not shoot the ball well. Uh, at Cal this year, but he's shot the ball very well in workouts, including the workout that he did with the Celtics. And if you're saying at number three, look, let's just swing for the guy who could be a superstar down the road and, and we'll take a risk, then Brown seems like a, a pretty good calculated risk. If they want an immediate impact player, then I think that's Chris Dunn or Jamal Murray. Dunn doesn't necessarily fit a need. The Celtics have been drafting point guards for a while. But I will say that I think Dunn is a better point guard prospect than anybody that currently sits on the Celtics roster right now, which is appealing. And his defensive ability especially is very, very attractive. Uh, Murray brings shooting, which is something the Celtics could use a lot more of and they need as well. His defensive abilities, though, are, are, are very questionable. And I think that's, that's the concern there. And so I think what the Celtics decide to do, I don't, I don't think they've even decided yet and i think part of it is trying to figure out trades figuring out what other uh, deals they might be able to do what's going to happen at 16 and 23 and all of that may affect who they end up taking at three because the difference between a chris dunn a jamal murray a marquise chris a jalen brown it's so negligible i think they're all similar types of prospects it's not you take the best player available they're in a tier of the best players available and then you take the guy that you think is going to fit um, the best need. And the Celtics may not know that until draft night, um, depending on the other sorts of deals that they do. So um, you're, you had another question, I think. Yeah. The, uh, well, it kind of ties in with, I mean, so you're, you're saying they're kind of down on Bender and two, what's been your gauge on the European market and how it's changed. Obviously it was flourishing in the early two thousands and it kind of died down uh, with a lot of draft busts, but how would you gauge the European market now, and why did it die, and why is it re, uh, resuscitated? I don't think they're down on Bender. In fact, Bender will be in Boston on Tuesday uh, for a workout, and, and the Celtics uh, went to Tel Aviv and signed there. I just think that they see him a bit as a, more of an unknown, uh, and I think that they look at their current roster uh, and, and who they have with Kelly Olenek, uh, for example, and wonder whether that's the best use of this pick. Uh, I think that if if they were drafting today, Bender probably wasn't in that conversation. I think he's right on the fringes on the outside of it. Uh, but he is going to come in and have a workout that they're running and, and that they can do whatever they want with him. And, and there's a possibility, given that they have more limited information on Bender than the other guys, that he really comes in and wows them and 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 becomes the number three pick. I don't think it's out of the question. As far as the international players being down, I, I think what happened was you know, when Pau Gasol and Dirk Nowitzki and several other elite international players, Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili, all sorts start coming in the league, there was a rush to Europe to just grab those guys with the sort of thinking that they're more skilled, um, that the fact that from a very young age they're allowed to just focus on basketball, that – uh, the training and coaching over there encourages uh, positional versatility. Big men are learn how to play point guard. Point guard learn how to play in the post. That all of those things were leading to these guys being more prepared 
uh, to play in the league and what have you. But then the NBA makes the mistake that they always did, which is that they were drafting guys before they'd actually proven that they know how to play. They were drafting guys without experience, guys that were not getting major minutes on their teams. Uh, they were drafting players often that had to make huge jumps culturally uh, from one sort of system to the next, but then struggled when they got here, whether it was with the language or just adjusting to the culture or being homesick or whatever. And then you had a string of bus starting with Darko Milicic that, that I think really for a while scared teams off. And I really think what they did is they strip mined Europe of all of its young players before they had a chance to really develop and really be able to come over and contribute uh, to, to the NBA. And I think you're starting to see that, that trend reverse now. I think you're starting to see that teams are being more patient. Uh, with the international prospects now, I think they've understood the mistakes that they've made in the past. I think that they're looking for players like a Porzingis, for example, who is playing at a very high level in Spain. He wasn't just playing in some sort of international tournament, and they took him based off of that, right? There was a lot of great video evidence and scouting evidence that this kid was going to be a good player. If you can compete in the ACB, you can compete in the NBA, and I think that's that's what they saw. And so I think you're seeing that trend shift. And I think you're also seeing one other trend, um, which a lot of people don't talk about, is that four of the top five or six international prospects in this draft are represented by the same agent. And that agent actually owns two teams in Europe or is part of uh, an ownership group of those teams in Europe. And they're actually collecting those players on teams and giving them significant minutes, almost like D-League developmental teams in Europe, and, and that's really helpful to the scouts to be able to see them play, to see them play significant minutes, to see them play against other competition. That stuff wasn't necessarily happening in the past because it was a lot harder for young international players uh, to be able to get minutes. And now that that trend is starting to develop in Europe as well, I think it is opening up the door uh, for us to be able to see younger players earlier in Europe and be able to make smarter decisions about who's ready and who isn't for the NBA. Thank you. Continuing on, we'll go to Samantha Pell with the uh, AP, and then Rusty with the uh, San Francisco Chronicle is on deck. Samantha, go ahead. Hello. I just wanted to get your opinion on the upperclassmen of this draft and where do you think they'll end up? Well, I think you start with Buddy Hild. I think he's going to be the first senior off the board, and I think his – is probably a ceiling starts at Minnesota at five, though I think it's more likely that we'll see him either go to New Orleans at six, Denver at seven, and I don't think he gets past the Sacramento Kings at eight. They really like him. He's a good fit uh, with what they're looking for. And, I, and I, if I were to peg him today, I'd say that he goes eight uh, to the Sacramento Kings. And then, you know, after that, I would say Denzel Valentine was the guy that was most likely the other, the other upperclassman that was really going to be a – um, or that was a senior that was likely to be drafted uh, in the lottery. But I think there's been some concerns uh, with Valentine. Uh, some, of the met, some, some of the teams have been concerned about some of the knee problems that he had uh, as a senior at Michigan, some of it diving deep into the medicals. And, and especially when you get a 22-year-old player and there's some concerns about that sort of stuff, you can start to shy away for prospects that might be a little more safer or have a little more upside I think it's more likely now that we're going to see Denzel Valentine going somewhere in the 20s. Bryce Johnson uh, out of North Carolina is another guy I think that could go somewhere in the late teens or early 20s off, off a great uh, senior season. Malcolm Brogdon 
out of Virginia, another senior uh, that I think uh, could end up cracking the first round. Jared Utoff out of Iowa, another senior that I think could end up cracking the first round. But as far as guys that are going to be huge impact players in the league, I think that most of those eggs are in Buddy Heald's basket right now. Okay, and do you see Chris Dunn? Obviously, he's a junior, but do you see him going up there too as well? I know you talked about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah Chris Dunn. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Chris Dunn's a junior, um, and he uh, absolutely is going to go in the three to to six range, I think. He's either going to uh, Boston or he's going to Minnesota or he's going to New Orleans. I think that he's got a very narrow window there. And I, you look, a lot of people think he may be the most NBA-ready of the prospects in this draft because of his elite size for his position, his elite length, and the fact that he's such a terrific defender right now. And I think one of the reasons rookies have a hard time getting on the floor in the NBA is because they can't play NBA-caliber defense. They just get abused. Uh, regardless of how good they are offensively, they just get abused and it takes time. I think a lot of teams feel Dunn could step in tomorrow in the NBA and be an elite defender, and, and I think that gives him a heads up as far as being able to get come in and get minutes and play right away in the league. Okay, great. Thank you. Perfect. Continuing on, Rusty in uh, San Francisco, and then uh, Conrad Brewer with Indy Sports is on deck. Rusty, go ahead. Yeah, thanks for doing this this morning. Um, the Warriors have had some some luck there at the end of the first round, uh, into the second round with Fetis Azili and, and Draymond Green. Just wondering who you think might be available there at, at 30 this year that, that would fit their system. Well, uh, the, the the Warriors are they've had they've had terrific scouting over the year, and look at look also if Kevon Looney ends up being able to solve his his uh, hip issues. That was an incredible pick. Uh, where they got him in the draft last year. And, and if, if he can get healthy, he's another versatile player. And we, we, all know what the, we all know what the Warriors like. We like The Warriors like guys that can play multiple positions, that can pass the ball, uh, that can ideally shoot the ball, um, that are going to be unselfish in the way that they play. Uh, and, and when you get to 30, it becomes harder to find elite guys like that. I, I think a couple things stand out to me later in the draft. One is – uh, that because of free agency, center becomes a- an issue and bigs become an issue for them, uh, and they're going to need them. And after what Oklahoma City uh, did to them uh, in the playoffs, I think they're sort of aware that um, this is an Achilles heel that they have and that they need to um, be able to, to address it with teams like Oklahoma City. And so you've got guys like Damian Jones out of Vanderbilt. You have Onawaku out of, out of Louisville. You have a number of international prospects, whether it's Ante Zizich or um, uh, 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 Zubac, Avika Zubac um, out of Bosnia. You have a number of guys sort of in that range that I think – have those sorts of skills, there's versatility, they can pass, they can do certain things, and they can fit into the Warrior system. And so I wouldn't be surprised at all to see them make a play actually for a big. It won't be the, won't be the starter uh, next year for sure. They're going to have to address those needs in free agency. But just to have, again, some guys that you can bring off the bench and some guys that can, that can add some toughness to the team, there's actually some unique prospects down there. And, I, and from all that I can gather from the Warriors, they're focused right now on those on those types of players. 
And, and you mentioned Looney there. Um, we haven't heard much during the, the playoffs since his, his second surgery. Are you hearing anything on, on the recovery since his second hip surgery? I haven't yet. Um, I know that hip surgery is a tough surgery uh, and that, you know, obviously required a second surgery. So obviously there's, um, there's long-term issues there. The only thing that I've heard out of Golden State is that the surgery was successful and they're confident um, that eventually he's going to come back to full strength. But details, I don't have any more. Thanks, Chad. I appreciate it. Continuing on, Conrad Brewer with Indy Sports is up now, and then Jerry Tipton with the Lexington Herald is on deck. Conrad, go ahead. Thanks, Chad. Regarding the Pacers, obviously their biggest need is point guard, but I would presume there's nobody at 20, maybe Baldwin, uh, that wouldn't be a reach. If there's not a point guard there, which way would you suspect they go? And would even the, would there be anybody at point guard even worth risking in the second round? Yeah, this isn't a strong uh, point guard draft, and I think that your your read is probably good. And, and, and I don't even think that necessarily the Pacers are in love with, with Wade Baldwin, uh, actually, either. Um, it, he's, he's a very polarizing prospect. Uh, the, some teams really do like him. Some teams struggle with him. Uh, look, if DeJounte Murray is there out of Washington, uh, I don't think the Pacers think he'll be there. I don't think he'll be there at 20. But if he is there, because there is a lot of fluidity in the draft, I, I think that will be an obvious choice for them. Uh, a guy with a lot of upside, great size and length for his position, can play multiple positions, and just has a feel and swagger for the game uh, that is impressive. You know, we saw a lot of that out of Paul George when he came out of Fresno State, even though there's a lot of question marks uh, around him and his performance those couple of years. But just on sheer talent and what he could bring to the table if he hit it, Larry Bird's the type of general manager that has a, has a good feel for that and uh, can ignore uh, some of the weaknesses that players have in college. He did it with Miles Turner last year as well, um, and take swings. And it seems like Larry Bird's a lot better when he's swinging for the fences than he is when he's trying to play it safe. He, he seems to be much better at actually drafting when he, he, he swings. And so if DeJounte Murray's there, I think that'll be their guy. I think a couple of other um, uh, two guards are also uh, on the table there. Malachi Richardson out of Syracuse. There's a lot of interest there. Furkan Korkmaz, um, if he's there uh, out of Turkey, uh, another guy who can shoot the ball and pass the ball, uh, I think are really attractive. I, I do think that the most likely scenario is that they look to the backcourt. Timothy Lawawu out of France is another uh, another wing. Um, I think that that can have some appeal, that they'll look to the backcourt, and if they can't get a point guard, then they go ahead and look for um, a two-guard. And I'd say one other guy that they really like, which is DeMontis Sabonis. Sabonis could go as high as eight or nine, but he could also be there at 20 as well, and I think that they feel like uh, Sabonis is the type of guy that could come in right away uh, and play a role very much like uh, what a David West did um, or Luis Scola did and, and and pair up nicely uh, with Miles Turner. Quick follow-up, if I may, Chad. You mentioned two guards. Valentine's a guy, obviously, everybody's worried about his knee. Is his knee so bad? Is this Granger-like? Because, you know, the Pacers were the team that rolled the dice on Granger and wound up striking a bit of gold with him a few years back. You know, every team has a different take on Valentine's knee from we're not drafting him on one extreme, uh, right, and that there's major concerns to – you know, 
you know, with the right care or whatever, this, you know, I think this is really manageable. And, and obviously he is a major, major prospect for the Pacers at 20. If he slides there, I think that uh, two months ago before the combine, they would say there was no way Valentine was even getting to him. And, and one of the appeals obviously is Valentine plays right now. Uh, he comes in and he is an immediate contributor uh, to the Pacers. I think they'll seriously consider him at 20, uh, but they, along with all those other teams, do know about his medical issues. And, and if he slides, he slides completely because of that, not because they don't think the talent is there. Thanks, Jeff. Jerry Tipton from the uh, Lexington Herald. You're up now with Adam from the Atlanta Journal on deck. Jerry, go ahead. Chad, I'm sure you're aware of John Calipari uh, recommended, if that's the right word, that uh, Jamal Murray be the first overall pick. How do you think that recommendation uh, went over? How much influence do uh, college coaches have in uh, these kind of decisions? None. Um, and he's not going to be the number one pick. And I, I don't, I don't think it carried that much weight. Uh, what John Calipari does is have huge influence all season because of the way that he plays his players, the, the system that he runs them in, the access that he gives the NBA teams. He does help players get drafted. There's no, there's no question. If my kid was an elite prospect, I would send him to Kentucky because I think he's got the best. That would give him the best shot to go high in the draft. I mean, you look at the terrible season that Skull had and the fact that he's going to be a lottery pick is, is amazing. And, and that has a lot to do with John Calipari, but going to a team and saying, you know what, you got to take him over Ben Simmons. I, I, you know, I don't think that's, that that's going to carry a lot of sway. And, and, you know, as, as far as Jamal goes, I, I don't think anybody's actually going to debate John, that if you're talking offensively, this kid is special. He can shoot it. Um, he can score off the bounce. He, he has a, a scores mentality and instinct and he's not afraid to do his job. And that's a, um, you know, that's a huge plus, but defensively there are going to be issues in the NBA. Uh, there, just, there were issues in college. And I, I think those issues will be compounded uh, in the NBA. And, and I think that that may hurt him via a Chris Dunn, uh, for example, if you're trying to compare um, those two guys together or Marquise Chris or Jalen Brown, all these guys, very elite athletes, and just that questioning, does Jamal Murray have the lateral quickness? I think he's okay vertically and explosively, but does he have the lateral quickness to defend his position in the NBA? And I, I know that's what every general manager from three to eight is trying to figure out right now. How good is his offense versus his defense? And you mentioned Scal, and uh, the question, uh, questions might be, does he know how to play basketball? Does he have the toughness? How are those kind of questions uh, answered uh, prior to getting him out on the floor in the NBA environment? Well, they're, 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 they're not figuring them out in workouts because Scal is doing one-on-none workouts at all of the teams. So they're not able to put him on the floor with other players and see how he responds to physicality or toughness or whatever. And so they, they really have two options. One is that a lot of teams design these one-on-none workouts to extremely fatigue and stress players. They're constantly throwing things at them and trying to confuse them, trying to wear them down, trying to get them tired. And then they want to see what is their resiliency, right? How do they respond 
uh, to getting thrown a bunch of things at them that maybe they're not expecting and, and, and being asked sometimes to do hard things that they're going to fail at and then being asked to do it again and again. And some players respond to that and, and really take up the challenge. And other, other players, believe it or not, quit. Uh, you, you'd be shocked. Players quit, stop workouts. That's not a good sign. Uh, you know, it's a really bad sign. Uh, and I'm not right. saying Skull has quit anything. I, I don't have any evidence that he has. I'm just saying that's one way they test it. And then the other way is that most teams are using forms of psychological evaluation now. They have team sports psychologists as well as tests that they give players to try to ascertain uh, the makeup, the mental makeup of players. It's becoming much, much bigger part of the draft process. They now have a database that goes back seven, eight years, and so they're able to start to compare players with similar uh, uh, emotional, psychological profiles to see how they um, ended up handling adversity in the NBA. And as more and more data begins to come in, uh, I think that it's going to become a more and more important tool. And so that's the other thing they're scouring over right now is what do their sports psychologists say in their, in their one-on-one interviews with him? How did he, how, what did he do on the test? And how did he take the test? And trying to figure out what, what after maybe health, I think health is probably the most important thing. Uh, and we're talking about Valentine. Like you have to be healthy to be a star in the NBA. You just have to be. I think mentality might, might be the next thing. Uh, you know, one of the things that we know now is that Draymond Green, like, tested off the charts on all of those mental um, and psych- psychological profiles and should have been a signal to NBA teams that this guy was going to figure it out, um, that he was so competitive, that he was so intelligent, all these things he was going to figure it out. I do think that this is becoming a bigger and bigger deal because you can have all the physical tools in the world, but if you don't have a feel for the game, if you're not going to be a hard worker, and if you're not competitive, it's not going to translate onto the court. Thanks, Chad. Yep. Adam from the Atlanta Journal is up now, and then Kevin from 24-7 Sports is on deck. Adam, go ahead. Uh, This new rule with the NCAA eligibility being pushed back, uh, it's obviously been pretty good for for the players, but has made this process any more difficult for uh, the teams to kind of evaluate guys, whether or not they know they're going to be in the draft or not? Uh, I think it's mildly annoying to some teams uh, because of the sheer number of underclassmen that declared for the draft. But I think, I think a lot of other that I, I say more enlightened teams took it as an opportunity. I know several teams uh, worked out roughly a hundred players uh, before the draft. And, and when they work them out, what they're doing is they're getting medicals, they're getting uh, psychological profiles. They're getting a chance to talk with players, which they cannot do um, until they declare for the draft. And so, you know, they go to these games and they scout these players, but they literally can't sit down and have a face-to-face discussion with these players because of NCAA prohibitions. And so it's, it's data for them. They're collecting all this data. And some teams have just taken advantage of that. Like, we, we think this kid's going to pull out. We don't think he's ready at all, but we still want to bring him in. We still want to collect that data because that helps us even scout him better uh, next next season. And I, and I think that part of the process teams would say, 
in a certain way. They wish every kid would declare for the, the draft. Everybody would be eligible so that they could go and collect the data uh, on the players that they want and get the information that they want. It's much harder uh, given the NCAA restrictions. So I think from an NBA standpoint, the more enlightened teams see this as an opportunity to get info. And I think players, it's the same way. Instead of before having to rely on what an agent's telling you or even – you know, frankly, having to rely on, on my big board or what, what have you, they really get the chance to go and get individualized feedback from NBA teams. And, and before, there was a committee of general managers that they could submit their name to, and they would come back with a sort of draft range. And actually, I think it was good information, and it was helpful information. But some players would say, yeah, but if they saw me work out, and if they saw me out of the system, and my coach doesn't let me do this or that – I'll be great, and then they jump into the draft anyway and then find out, no, that evaluation was right. This gives them the chance to, to try to prove themselves to teams and, and get that feedback. And so for me, I think it's good for everybody other than maybe college coaches that are still trying to recruit and don't know what spots they'll have open and what, what they don't have open. But I even look at the players this year, high school players that waited uh, to kind of see how this all played out, and it it worked out fine for everybody. So I, I think that overall this is a, a, this is a dramatic improvement over what we've seen in the past. And then my uh, other question would be, you called Wade Baldwin a, a very polarizing prospect. What is it about him that, that makes so many teams like him and then other teams you know, afraid to pull the trigger? Well, the pros are NBA body, NBA athlete, good size for position, and he actually, even though his shot isn't the most beautiful shot in the world, he shot the ball really well both years at Vanderbilt, which is a you know big plus on a big point guard. There's a lot of uh, Darren Williams in him, uh, I think, as a player. On the downside, uh, I think there's a real questions about his feel as a point guard, uh, getting other players involved, making uh, making players better. I think there's a huge question there. I think there's a lot of questions about what went down at Vanderbilt this year, a team that many people projected as a final four team um, that just struggled and struggled um, after getting off to a hot start. And most of that had to do with chemistry. And after the season was over, the coaching staff at Vanderbilt uh, and and teams doing their info weren't as complimentary to Baldwin as, as they could have been about what they thought about coaching him and his leadership on the court. And I think that's given some teams pause. Some teams look at that and say, look, he's just a super competitive guy. Uh, and he was frustrated that they were losing, and this is he's a 20-year-old, and that's not a big deal. Like We want him to be competitive. We want him to call out players and things like that. Other teams, that, depending on how they sort of value culture and sort of what things they're looking for, look at that, and you know they get a little squeamish about that. And so if Baldwin went 12 to the Jazz, that wouldn't surprise me at all. If he went in the 20s, that wouldn't surprise me either. Thank you. Kevin from uh, 24-7 Sports, you're up now. And then uh, Brandon with uh, MLive.com is on deck. Kevin, go ahead. Yeah. Chad, can you name four or five guys who could potentially be the next Draymond Green, not necessarily in terms of turning into an all-star or even playing style, but maybe second-rounders who have a chance to stick or start in the league just basically based on the skill set or what they bring to the table? Okay, so you're not asking me to compare them as far as uh, as similar skill sets. You're just asking guys 
and the sec- sleepers that could stick in the draft. I just want to make sure I answer your question. Correct, correct. Right? yes. Okay. Um, yeah, because they're probably not a Draymond Green. Uh, <laughs> he's, a, he's a tough guy to duplicate. I actually think that one of the strengths of this draft is that when you get into the 20s and you get into the 30s, there's a lot of players that I think are going to stick in the league. There's a, there's a depth to this draft. The, the star level and the, even the starter level drops off, drops off really early, which is why a lot of scouts are, are frustrated with this draft. A lot of teams are. But then getting into the 20s and 30s, man, there's a lot of guys that I think you know, could really have long careers. Jared Utah out of Iowa is a guy who's both athletic can shoot the ball and, and can protect the rim. And those sorts of combinations uh, tend to find a spot in the NBA. Anawaku out of Louisville, this guy has an NBA body, is a rebounding fiend. Um, he is the type of tough, aggressive player that if you watched what Steven Adams was able to do and how he was able to disrupt players, even though he's not a great offensive player, just in sheer toughness and motor and, and physicality, Onowaku brings a lot of that to the table. He's 19 years old, and I, I think there's some interest there. Torian Prince out of Baylor is a 6'8", 220-pound guy who could be a Damari Carroll uh, type in the NBA. He's going to be a 3-and-D guy who hits, who hits threes, who can guard multiple positions. Uh, you know, Carroll was another guy who slipped into the second round, and I, I think that was, a, you know, obviously that was ended up being a huge mistake. He's a really uh, talented uh, player Isaiah Cousins out of uh, out, out of Oklahoma. You know it was the Buddy Hield show all year at Oklahoma. But here's a six four combo guard who's an elite athlete who can really shoot the uh, shoot the ball. Who's a good defender, and I think some teams really believe that he's got he's got some real point guard skills uh, to his game. And again, he didn't average huge numbers at Oklahoma in part because you know Buddy was taking all of those shots. But he's come in and worked out extremely well, and teams are like, man, this guy checks off a lot of boxes. The athlete, yes. Shoots the ball, yes. Good handle, sees the game, yes. Defends multiple positions. That's a recipe, you know, typically for a guy that's going to stick in the league for a long time. And you may say, well, then why isn't that guy a first-rounder? And all I can say is it's harder for seniors. It's harder for them to, to feel sexy or to feel like they have any upside teams want to look at seniors and say they are what they are. And most of the time, by the way, they're right. Most seniors do not do well uh, in the NBA. There's a, a, an analytical bias towards them because they typically have capped out, but occasionally, and Draymond's the great proof of this occasionally they were just misscouted or underestimated in a certain way in their growth and their ability. And you put them in the right situation in the NBA and they actually blossom. And so those are, those are just a few guys that, that, that I would, I would spout off as being guys that I think are, are probably a little underrated um, that we might be looking at guys going in the thirties and saying, Hey, these guys ended up being really good prospects. Thank you. Perfect. And um, I believe that uh, Quinn from MLive.com dropped off, so we're going to keep moving on and uh, try to go to John Reed here in down in New Orleans, and then uh, Jeff Greer uh, with Lexington would be on next. John, are you uh, up and ready? I'm up and ready. Um, Chad, go ahead. I got on the call a little late, but um, where do you think the Pelicans are going to what direction do you think they're going to go? I think you wrote something early this week that, uh, on a proposed trade, and uh, 
and I guess the second part of that, is there much separation between Hill, Dunn, and um, and Murray? You know, do you, do you think there's separation, or that you, you're pretty much getting the same caliber of player at, with, with, with either of those three? Uh, I, I would I would rank Dunn and Murray just a little bit higher than Buddy. Uh, I think they're very different players. And so if the Pelicans need a point guard, if they're really looking at Drew Holiday and, and given the fact that he's in the last year of his deal and the stress fracture and uh, the, the health problems that he's had, that they really feel like they need to start developing a young point guard uh, to work uh, with Anthony Davis. I think Chris Dunn is a great fit. His ability to defend multiple positions, his athleticism, his ability to penetrate. I actually think Dunn might be a better prospect down the road uh, than Drew Holiday is. I think his ceiling is higher um, than Drew's was. And so that that's a really intriguing thing for them, though you could argue they still have Drew next year and, and maybe they don't need to go that route, though I think Drew can play off the ball. Obviously, with Eric Gordon being a free agent, you look and say, okay, having a two-guard that can really shoot the basketball is another major need uh, for the Pelicans, and both Murray and Heald fit that role. I like Murray a little better for a couple of reasons. One, he's 19, and and if you look at what Buddy Heald did at Oklahoma at 19, where he averaged seven points a game, and you look at Jamal Murray, what he did at 19 at Kentucky, averaging 20 points a game, that that's a pretty huge disparity, and, and statistically – uh, if you look at it analytically, what players do at 19 is actually a very strong indicator of what they're going to do at the NBA. Guys that don't figure it out until they're 20, 21, 22 uh, tend to struggle more in the NBA just despite where they end up topping out um, in college basketball. And I think the other thing about Murray is the, the ability to play multiple positions on the floor. He he was a point guard in high school. He did not play that at Kentucky because Tyler Ulis was there. But he's got that feel for the game that I think um, allows the Pelicans to use him in, 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 in different sorts of lineups, which I think is really attractive uh, to a team uh, like the Pelicans. Buddy is more just a pure shooter and scorer at the two. He's not a great ball handler. He's not a great defender. Neither is Murray. If both of those guys are on the board, I can't tell you which way they'll go. I, I think they're, 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 they both have an interest in a lot of them. And it really might be more, how are they assessing the free agent market? How are they assessing trades? And do they think that they have a chance to bring in a point guard that way? Or do they think they have a chance to bring in a two guard that way? And then they draft the other guy. And, and don't count out Dragan Bender and Jalen Brown uh, in New Orleans either. Uh, Bender, uh, the, the Pelicans have scouted him extensively. Uh, they're losing Ryan Anderson, uh, or they, they're, they're believed he's a free agent. They may not lose him, they may resign him, but they might lose him. And, and I think Drog and Bender brings a lot of the things to the table uh, that Ryan Anderson does. And Jalen Brown had an incredible workout for them and is a guy that I think there's a lot of interest in on just sheer upside of adding an elite talent uh, next to Anthony Davis. And if he shoots the ball, as well as he's done in workouts and, and that the, the whole shooting debacle at Cal was really a, an outlier because he was actually a pretty good shooter in, in high school, uh, then he's worthy of that pick for sure. Thank you, Jeff. We are going to go to uh, Jeff Greer down in uh, Lexington. Uh, Jeff, go ahead. 
Chad, I'm actually in Louisville. Um, so first of all, I just wanted to ask you, you touched on him a little bit uh, a few minutes ago about Shinano Anawaku and uh, maybe the impact of the, of the procedure he had uh, right after the combine on his stock. And I also wanted to get your thoughts on Damian Lee while I had you. I think that it's a concern whenever you talk about a heart condition uh, and, you know, you see Sean Rooks just, you know, pass away from that and, and a history of that with, with NBA players, it's always a concern. I do think that teams are pretty confident that in some ways it was really great that Anawaku had declared for the draft, got to the combine, had that issue, issue identified and was able to, to go through a surgical procedure um, that should uh, help him in the future. And so I think that, the read that I'm getting from most teams is that they're comfortable that the, the procedure that he had um, should make him fine and be able to play uh, basketball for a long time. And, and, but there's always with those risks, right? Whenever you introduce risk into the picture, it destabilizes your draft stock a little bit. And when players don't have any of those risks, I think the way he played at the combine, he would be a first-round pick for sure. I think he's a bubble first-rounder now. I do think that you'll see teams like the Spurs uh, and the Warriors, uh, for example, and Toronto um, at 27 that will give him a real look because of his age and just what he's able to do physically. Um, And if he doesn't go there, he's going to get gobbled up in the first five or six picks uh, in the second round because then the risk – is, is so much more minimized. And I think that you're just going to see uh, an, an appeal there that I think will, will help him. As far as Damian Lee goes, I think that it's unlikely that he gets drafted. And I think that the most likely scenario is that he gets an invite to a summer league team, tries to make the team there. And if he can't do that, then he goes either to the D league or he goes over to Europe. I think he could have a long career in Europe. I think that's probably the best way for him to go. All right, thank you so much. Perfect, and uh, we got time for a few more here. So I know some people have been hanging on, so we appreciate it. So we're going to go to uh, Chad with the Des Moines Register now, and then uh, Sean with North State Journal, I believe, is uh, still on the line on deck. So Chad, go ahead. Yeah, Chad, thanks for taking the time. Um, you mentioned Jared Utah a little earlier as a possible late first rounder. Maybe what are some of the how likely is that? Maybe what are some of the better fits um, for him in his skill set? Utah, um, he's, he's yeah. a unique right. player uh, because you don't find a lot of guys at 6'9 who uh, shoot the ball like he shoots it, but also has this ability to be a shot blocker. And one, one thing I think is appealing for him is that his ability to guard other perimeter oriented fours in the league because of uh, his, his ability to, to move laterally and to get out on the floor uh, where he's going to get, where he's going to have problems is with physicality. Uh, he obviously needs to add a lot of strength. And if you're thinking about trying to play him on the block, he's going to have a real problem in the NBA. And I think that the other thing about him is that, you know, at Iowa, he, he didn't just dominate games every game. He, he would be dominant in stretches, and I mean dominant in stretches. Uh, and then other times he would just completely disappear. And we actually saw that in the, in the draft combine, too. There was like spurts where Utah looked great, and then you wouldn't even know he was on the court, again, for five, six, seven-minute stretches um, at a time. And so 
all of those things, I think, hurt his long-term draft stock as far as getting drafted really high. But I actually think he starts in the 20s. I, I think there's teams like the Pacers, for example, that have really liked him for a long time and see him as a good fit for what they do. I, I don't think it's likely he gets drafted there, but if he went that high, that wouldn't shock me. And then he's got several more spots in the 20s. And again, he's a guy who I think once he gets to the 30s, he doesn't, he doesn't get out of the 30s. Thanks a lot. Continue with Sean from the North State Journal, and then Brian from goldenblack.com is on deck. Sean, go ahead. Hi, Chad. Uh, wondering about Brandon Ingram from Duke. Uh, how big of a concern is his upper body strength or his bulk, or is, or is that not really a concern after, after what Kevin Durant has done? It's a concern because even Kevin Durant, as skinny as he was coming out of Texas, was considerably heavier than Brandon Ingram was. And uh, Brandon Ingram's 195 pounds at, at 6'10". That is, that is uh, epically thin. Uh, he, he was walking around uh, ESPN the other day with the, um, uh, and a promotion with Speed Stick, and I'm like, oh, that's almost like a great nickname for him in the NBA, the, uh, Brandon Ingram, the Speed Stick. Um, he, he's, and so how is that affecting? You know, there's just the physicality uh, of the league, and I will say that he's a tough kid. That at, at Duke, he really, even though he was thin, he was not afraid to mix it up. He did not shy away from contact. Uh, that he was tough. That when guys got physical with him, he bounced back. But he's going to get a little overwhelmed at first in the league, and and I think two things are going to determine his future. One is if he continues to develop that jump shot. And I saw him shoot the lights out in a workout that that I went to. Um, in New York from the NBA three-point line. If he's going to do that in the league, then he's going to have a long, long career because no one's going to be able to block that shot. And and uh, you've seen guys like Reggie Miller, for example, with a very thin body do just fine in the NBA um, because they had a skill um, that allowed them to thrive anyway. And he's going to be able to defend multiple positions uh, on the on the perimeter, which I think is really appealing I, I think if guys are going to post him up, he's going to have some issues. Uh, and that's going to be, um, you know, the one or the biggest concern that I think that you're going to see uh, from teams on that end. Uh, but, th- look, that's, that's the real only concern with Ingram. If Ingram was at 220 right now, uh, he probably would pass Ben Simmons as the number one pick in the draft. But at 195, that's, a, that's very, very challenging. Perfect. Thank you very much. All right. Brian with goldenblack.com and then Charles with the Minnesota spokesman. Brian, go ahead. Yeah. Hey, Chad. How are you? Good. 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 Uh, Just kind of interested to know how you see this playing out for A.J. Hammonds and maybe what the laundry list of pros and cons are surrounding him. A.J. Hammonds? From Purdue, Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, as far as talent goes, uh, he is extremely talented. He is a gifted big man. And if you're talking just on talent, he would have been drafted in the lottery. Uh, as far as a, a big man that maybe he has some like DeMarcus Cousins in him um, and how he plays and how he sees um, the game. The question for him is many of the same things that have plagued DeMarcus Cousins over the years, like commitment, mm-hmm. conditioning, um, playing hard all the time, 
um, being a good teammate, uh, he didn't produce like DeMarcus Cousins produced in Kentucky, too. A lot of it was was a little bit more theoretically. I mean, DeMarcus Cousins was a big-time scorer and producer as a freshman um, at Kentucky. And, you know, A.J. really didn't really start to produce at a high level until his senior year this year at Purdue. And and I think that's extended even to the workouts. I think he's come in and he's still he's in better shape, but he's not in elite shape. Mm-hmm. And I think when you go into a job interview for the NBA draft, these teams look at you and say, how can you not, for millions of dollars, like be in the best possible shape that you could be for us? Right. Like what what's going on? And, and most prospects are. I mean, most prospects are spending months uh, just changing everything about what they do so that they can come in and show like I'm 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 dedicated. I'm a pro. And so there's the conundrum with A.J. The fact that he's 23 years old um, mm-hmm. and there's still questions about his maturity and still questions about his commitment. Uh, but that you see the skill set that is so enticing and so attractive that teams want to take him. And, uh, you know, I've talked to a number of teams about him, and I think he's one of the most difficult prospects to pay. Because if if I told you, like, every team in the league liked him, that wouldn't be an exaggeration. Like, they love the skill set. And if I also told you that every team in the league is afraid to take him, that also wouldn't be an exaggeration. And so – where does that end up? I think it probably ends up in the second round where the risk is less and the guaranteed money is less and teams can use that lack of guaranteed money as a way to try to motivate a player um, by basically saying, look, every year you have to produce or your contract ends, right? As opposed to a guaranteed, guaranteed deal that you get in the first round that can, that can protect you a minimum of two years and, and, and most of the time three or four. I think that most teams will see that as a motivational tool for AJ. Right. One quick follow-up. Is this, with the way the NBA has gone from a style of play perspective, getting a little bit smaller, getting a little, a little bit more skilled, is this a good time to be that true seven-foot center or have those days kind of passed a little bit? It's, it's probably not a good time in that if you're going to play below the rim, if you can't defend anybody, uh, it's 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 hard to make a living. I mean, the Sixers are figuring out right now with Jalil Okafor who they would like to trade and get into another pick in the draft that they're having a hard time trading him. And it's not because Jalil Okafor is not a good player because he is. He's a really good player. And he actually had a really good rookie season. Um, it's because teams aren't trying to play that style anymore. And they want to play fast and they want versatility and and they want guys that can, do, that can face the basket and pass and do all those things. And so it, it is a harder, a harder mix for them. I will say that AJ actually, in some ways, has more of those skills uh, than 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 Okafor does. Who, so to me, is just a pure back to the basket, brilliant in the post um, sort of player. I think AJ actually brings a little bit more basketball skill, uh, maybe not production, but skill to the to the game. But you're right; it, it's the center has become the equivalent of the NBA or the NFL running back. Now, um, as offenses have shifted, that position has become less and less important and more and more teams want to play the way the warriors are to play the way that, um, you know, frankly, like the Cavs have been playing, you know, lately, you know, Tristan Thompson's now a center and Draymond Green's a center and really try uh, if you can um, to put skilled um, quicker players on the floor. All right. 
Chad, I'm good. Thank you so much. Uh-huh. Okay, we're going to wrap it up. we got time for three more, and then uh, that's going to be it. So we're going to go with uh, Charles with uh, the Minnesota Spokesman, followed by uh, Rob with DeafPen.com, and, and Brett Downs with the New Orleans Advocate. And as mentioned, there will be a transcript available this afternoon. So, Charles, uh, go ahead. Uh, thank you, Chad. You've been asked a lot of questions over the last hour. Is there any questions that you haven't been asked about the draft that you'd like to talk about? Oh, that's nice. Uh, I think that I, I would say a couple of things and maybe they're ones that nobody really wants to write about that. But one is that I do think that this is a strong international draft and um, that analytically our guy, Kevin Pelton and our, our ESPN analytics team have said that maybe that's the value of the draft right now. And so whether it's Dragon Bender or Furkan Korkmaz or Ante Zizic or Ivica Zubac or Timothy Luawu or Juan Hernan Gomez, uh, Gershon Yabasele, I mean, we're talking about a, a group that might include seven or eight international players drafted in the first round. Um, Zhou Qi out of, uh, out of China is another one. And that's, uh, it's been a long time since we've seen that in the draft, and and this isn't necessarily teams overreaching. I actually think we have a really solid group of international prospects that that frankly might be better than some of the American prospects that are going ahead of them because of the familiarity that's there. So I think that's one one note um, to really to to take. I, I think the other note is just to watch the trends in the NBA: guys that can play multiple positions, guys that can shoot the basketball guys that can pass the basketball, including bigs, uh, and guys that can defend, that, that, is the, that is what teams are really looking for now. Low post scoring doesn't seem to be that big of a, um, a, an attractive feature anymore. Guys that are just be able to create their own shot off the dribble but can't shoot, those guys are also not particularly uh, doing well in these workout processes. Every year it's trendy. And right now, everybody's looking at the Warriors, and they're saying, we want players like the players that the Warriors have, whether it's a Draymond Green or a Steph Curry or a Clay Thompson or an Andre Iguodala. That is what we want. And so you're going to see draft decisions that are going to reflect that, I think, throughout the draft. And guys that might have had a really good college career sliding because they lack some of those key components. And guys that maybe have not had as great of college careers um, – uh, like um, like someone like Patrick McCaw out of UNLV or DeAndre Bembry out of St. Joseph's rising in the draft because they have some of those coveted skills. I have one quick follow-up. Do you, do you think the Timberwolves may package that top pick? Uh, that's going to be the rumor around here locally. Say that again. Do you see the Timberwolves possibly packaging their top pick number five to, to make a trade? As there seems to be the rumor that's circling around here locally. I think they're looking at they're looking for sure at it. Obviously, Thibodeau looks at his roster and says that he has his two young building blocks and Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins. And so, how do I use some of these other assets to start putting veterans around them? Not old veterans, but younger veterans that can really start to teach us how to win because the next level of growth for Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins is to make it into a playoff series and see how that changes the game. And so many young players say that one of their key points in development 
was when they made it to the playoffs and they saw that next level of intensity and how teams are sort of playing there. And I, and I think Thibodeau wants that. I think he sees that. And so getting younger doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense for the Timberwolves. I, I do think that they'll be happy with the fifth pick. There's guys that they like there. But if they can package that fifth pick and maybe some of their other assets that are not Andrew Wiggins or Carl Anthony Towns to bring in a Jimmy Butler type, um, someone like that, there's going to be a lot of appeal there. Um, for them to do that. And I actually think it's the right move for them. As long as Wiggins and Towns are untouchable, I definitely think tinkering with this roster now will help the development of those players. And that's got to be the primary focus of the Wolves. And I think Thibodeau knows that. And I think he knows what sorts of players would fit around them in ways to help them get better. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. And then uh, we got two more here, Rob with uh, DefPen.com, and then we'll finish up with Brett down in New Orleans. Rob, go ahead. Thanks. Hey, Chad. Thanks for uh, taking the time up to talk to us today. Um, I did have uh, one question about some teams that are in the uh, exact mix of things right now as far as the two teams up in New York um, with the Knicks and the Nets. Are you hearing um, anything as far as them trying to get in maybe to the late first round as rumored? And if so, do you have any idea of any players are possibly targeting um, with those potential, you know, late first round, early second round picks they, they might be able to acquire? Well, they got to get the picks first, and I think they're having a hard time. And the reason they're having a hard time is they just don't have a lot of assets that teams really covet. And because of the, um, the cap opening up, and, and the cap number going up 40% so dramatically, teams don't need just cash for their picks, which in, in years past you would just see teams like the Knicks buy a pick for $3 million. Uh, they don't need that cash anymore, and they don't need to clear uh, cap holds off their roster space so that they can pursue an elite free agent like Dallas is notorious in the past of move, moving their picks because those picks hold a cap hold that, that, that shrink their pool of money that they have to spend on free agents. So many teams are flush with cash right now that neither of those considerations are going in. And so that means that the only way the Knicks or the Nets get a pick is by giving an asset back that the team values more. The Nets have nothing. Uh, I mean, they don't have their, they don't control their draft pick for another couple of years. So they can't offer a future draft pick uh, to try to get in the draft now and the one player that they have that's a younger player that I think does truly excite teams, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, they don't want to give him up because he's the one young guy that they got that I think they, that they are excited about and think that he could be uh, a talent down the road. So it's, it's tough for them to get in. And then on the, on, the, on the Knicks side, I think they have a few more assets, but again, not necessarily ones that are really attractive. They, they don't want to give up their young assets. They're not going to trade Christoph Sporzingis. They're not, I don't think they're going to put, trade Jerry and Grant. I think they recognize that they need some of these young guys to build around. And so the assets that they, they do have uh, that they could trade are just not particularly appealing. I'm not saying that they won't get in, 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 the, in the draft, but I think that while there's been strong attempts um, to get in for both teams, Everything that I've heard from other teams is that those are two teams that they don't really want to deal with because they just don't feel like the assets are there um, to do it. Now, the Knicks uh, uh, first-round pick next year, 
that is a great asset, but the Knicks would be super foolish to trade that because the draft is so much stronger next year. I, I think the only way the Knicks get into this mix is if they make Carmelo available. And at that point, then, yeah, they'll be able to pick up those assets. But uh, so far, that has not happened. And just a quick follow-up. Um, if you could, um, top three guys for next year, is Harry Giles lead the way, or is there other guys that, are, that, you, that you're looking at? Well, Harry, Harry Giles, if he had not um, partially torn his ACL his senior year, probably would have been hands down the guy um, that we'd be talking about. He's going to Duke. Reminds a lot of scouts of a young Chris Weber. Uh, in just his incredible skill set and versatility at a 6'11", uh, athletic um, power forward. And uh, there's there's just a lot of appeal there. Um, but because we're just not sure, this is his second knee injury uh, in, in about two years, you know, those are the sorts of things that scare teams a, a bit away from taking a guy at number one when that, we have that history of injuries. And, and he'll be watched closely at, at Duke this year to see how he bounces back from that. I think Josh Jackson, who's going to Kansas, is uh, probably going to be um, the presumptive number one. I don't think there's going to be a clear-cut one like there was with Simmons this year. But a guy that is a two-way player, that's an elite athlete, elite motor um, great basketball skills all the way around. Just an exciting player to watch. Not a great jump shooter, streaky jump shooter, but just one of these players that just has such a great feel and knows for the ball and game and has such a, an elite competitive spirit that, that teams are going to love him. I, I, I sort of, I sort of uh, think he's like a Michael Kidd Gilchrist with a much better offensive repertoire um, than Gilchrist has. And then Markel Fultz out of Washington is the other guy that I would say um, to keep an eye on. He's a big combo guard uh, that has virtually no flaws in his game. I mean, he, he's been so good uh, this summer and spring uh, in the way that he's played, and he's got athleticism, and he's got court vision, and he can shoot the basketball, and he can score off the bounce, and he's unselfish, and there's just so many things to like about Fultz's game. I think those are going to be the three guys that you're going to hear spoken about a lot as a, as a, as a number one pick. And, and I don't think like this year, there's a presumptive favorite going into it. And then as you get a little further down in the draft, uh, I, I would say the one thing that's going to be really intriguing about the 2017 draft is that we're going to have five point guards in our top 10. And there's been a drought of elite point guards coming into the draft the last few years. And I think that five of these guys – uh, that are coming out of high school into the draft could be NBA All-Stars someday. And that's, that gets teams excited. That's such an important position in the NBA. Um, that's part of the reason there's a lot of excitement about the 2017 draft. 